Keith Michael Fields is the executive director of the American Library Association, headquartered in Chicago. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. First question, what do you do? I am the executive director of the American Library Association. Uh, the American Library Association is the world's oldest library association. It was founded in 1876 by Melville Dewey and a few friends uh, to advance the cause of uh, libraries uh, in the United States and in the world. Library sciences or libraries? Libraries and library science. Uh, so that was uh, a very fruitful period, needless to say. Not only did they establish the first library schools, they really were instrumental in the creation of public libraries uh, throughout the United States, which, which didn't really exist in the 1870s, uh, basically creating most of what uh, now constitutes librarianship. Pretty impressive pedigree. Uh, indeed. ALA has been active for uh, over 130 years, over a period of time, ALA gradually became, I think, a, a comprehensive voice for libraries. Uh, at this point, our mission is to provide leadership in the development uh, and promotion of library services, uh, and also to uh, increasingly fight for public access to information, the ability to uh, uh, engage in learning through libraries. Uh, so I think at this point, the mission of the association really does focus um, on the profession, uh, it focuses on libraries, and it focuses on the public. And those are almost three uh, obviously interrelated, but uh, also intertwined uh, areas of endeavor. Uh, I've been the executive director uh, for six years now. Prior to coming to Chicago, I was the director of the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners, which is the state agency uh, responsible for state and federal programs for libraries in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, did that for 10 years. Prior to that, I was a consultant for the New Jersey Li State Library, for the New York State Library. Uh, I have been a regional system administrator. I have been a public librarian. I have been a school librarian, and I have been at various times a library consultant uh, and authored uh, a couple of books on library planning and technology. So you're pretty well qualified then. Uh, well, uh, will that remains to be seen. You always have to uh, deal with the next challenge coming along. Uh, just a little bit about how ALA operates. Uh, ALA currently has 67,000 members. About 57,000 of them are personal members, librarians, library staff, trustees, and uh, others interested in libraries. Uh, we have organizational members, corporate members, chapters in every state. Uh, so each state has a library association. They are all uh, essentially chapters of ALA, uh, and usually about half of the state members are also members of ALA. You don't have to be an ALA member in order to be a member of a state chapter. No, uh, why, why would they join them? A joint ALA or yeah. the state chapter? Uh, that's a good question. We spend a lot of time talking about why people join ALA and why people should join ALA. I think the reasons really are at a couple of different levels. At one level, because it's the right thing to do. Because by becoming part of the association, you help us to fight for things like fair use, copyright, mm -hmm. uh, intellectual freedom, access to government information, uh, transparency in government. Sorry, these are all things that, as a, as a member of the general public, I want to be able, for example, to go to my library and get free access to all sorts of 
databases that they might subscribe to, which right. I, I couldn't ordinarily get myself. Exactly. Or I'd have to pay a fair amount of money for. Right. So you're basically, by paying a membership, you're supporting that uh, cause. Exactly. Uh, and a lot of this occurs at the policy level. We also work with things like uh, government appropriations and the like. Um, on the other side, the other reason for joining the association is, in fact, enlightened self-interest. Uh, because the association is a great way of getting ahead if one is working in a library, if one decides to become a librarian. The career move then. Sorry. Exactly. People yeah. either having a career or yeah. having a job. And I think that the distinction is really whether or not one becomes involved uh, professionally. On a practical level in, in that middle ground, if you're going to get new ideas, if you're going to be inspired, if you're going to know what's around the next bend, if you're going to have a handle on best practice, there really is no better place to do it uh, mm -hmm. than through association conferences, publications, publications right. you name it. Okay. What about the, uh, the the libraries themselves? So there's there's different kinds of memberships. There's individual librarians who have an interest in furthering their career and finding out what's going on among their colleagues. There's right. people who are just members of the general public. The actual institutions themselves would join why? Uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, because they can then receive things like discounts for their staff going to annual conference, which can be a, a significant savings. They may join because, for instance, they want their trustees to be part of our trustee section. This, in the case of public libraries, uh, allows them to get information, again, on best practice and uh, legal issues that they may need to deal with or policy issues. Wouldn't their individual members get that? Uh, they would, but the advantage of an organizational membership is that everybody, so for instance, all of the trustees would get benefits. Uh, as opposed to just one just or two trustees who are individual members. Okay. Uh, similarly, with staff joining, staff would get a discount on their membership, discount on um, the uh, attendance at conference, and basically then access to publications at a discount. So it's a great deal if uh, a library is interested in making sure that the uh, largest number of people actually benefit. And we've been working a lot on packages to send individuals to online courses, to symposia and institutes and the like, uh, and really just be able to get uh, discounts all around. Just best bang for the buck. Exactly. Yeah. What percentage of libraries are members of yours? As far as libraries go, I would say it's about 10% of libraries, but I think about 50% of librarians are individual members. Uh, and this is based on a membership of about 60,000. As far as we can tell, there are about 150,000 librarians uh, in the United States, probably another 250,000 other people employed in libraries as paraprofessionals or, or clerical mm -hmm. uh, or IT people or, or HR people. What about uh, the biggest, like, it, uh, you know, just in terms of your voice, to government, right? If you are you able legitimately to say that you represent all of the, the the most important libraries and institutions in the United States, I think we can comfortably say that there are other organizations, uh, and there are wonderful organizations, the Special Libraries Association, which has some, a very strong corporate 
a special library membership medical library association mm -hmm. which works obviously with hospital and other uh, medical libraries the american association of law libraries which works with a lot of legal libraries and state government type libraries and, and academic law libraries law schools and the like but i think that if you're looking at the broadest representation of public libraries academic libraries uh, and school libraries that ALA certainly represents, I think, the broadest spectrum and the, the most significant membership. Okay. What's going to change about libraries in the next 10 years? Well, let's see. Clearly, probably the most significant change on the surface uh, is the increased uh, reliance on electronic resources. Surprisingly, things like book circulation and the circulation of other library materials uh, continue very strong and in fact are continuing to increase at a, a moderate rate uh, in the United States where we're really seeing enormous uh, increases are in things like use of online databases, remote access to library websites, and just people coming into the library to use library computers because they either don't have access to their own or because they've Googled and gotten 17,000 hits uh, and are a little bit uh, at a loss as to what to do next. How do companies react to libraries providing material for free to the public if that's how they make their money? Well, that's an interesting question because I think that if you look at the statistics, you will see that in fact libraries probably provide a significant amount of financial support for publishers in the United States. Uh, let me just say that if you're going to be selling... Just, sorry, in terms of the purchasing of actual pur books? Purchasing of actual books. And uh, where this is particularly significant is in areas such as scholarly publications, independent presses, uh, and mid-size publishers. If you're going to be selling the Da Vinci Code uh, in airports, you don't need libraries. But the fact of the matter is that those kinds of runaway bestsellers probably represent less than 5% of the published output. The other 95% are really dependent on libraries that are buying books that are not just the bestsellers, but in fact represent sort of broader collections to meet the broader needs of their communities. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that if libraries went out of business, probably half of our publishers would go down with them uh, as well. Uh, you asked about changes in libraries. Probably the most frequently asked question is, oh, will libraries survive? As somebody who's worked with legislators for probably the last 25 years now, that's a very convenient question because um, many people who are funding libraries would like to be assured, in fact, that they're no longer necessary and that uh, the Internet is taking care of everything. The reality is, is that that's not happening. I would say that individual ownership of PCs has kind of leveled off and certainly with uh, the development of just faster and newer technology, it may be that we will have sort of a permanent have-and-have-not situation on a permanent basis going forward. So that means an enormous number of people are going to be depending on libraries for basic access to information resources. Government publications are going electronic. Libraries used to 
uh, distribute tax forms in the lobbies of uh, public libraries. Uh, at this point, a lot of e-government is now being provided to people that don't have access to computers. Mm -hmm. So um, after her, it's a public service. To, exactly. Yeah. So what what is I think an untold story is the fact that to a large degree, libraries are essentially becoming the means by which citizens are going to be able to access government uh, in its traditional sense. After Hurricane Katrina. Uh, where did people go in order to fill out FEMA forms that were only available online? Uh, they lined up at libraries, uh, you know, by the thousand, because there was no other place to go. There is no other outlet in a typical community where you can not only get access to information, you can also have somebody who can help you to interpret it uh, and help you navigate through. The other thing that I think is an untold story is there really has been a significant uh, renaissance in library construction, particularly public library construction in the states. Uh, I know that in Massachusetts we rebuilt about, at this point, probably 90% of all public libraries. In most instances they were at least doubled in size. And the reason being, even though collections are tending to be a little bit smaller and more selective, to the number of seats needed for people who are studying using computers or using the library essentially as a community resource yeah. has really increased. Uh, libraries have been adding meeting rooms so that groups can meet. So I think that the library as place in fact is much stronger than it was before the advent of the internet as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that many of the other traditional mechanisms that provide for and supported community life are not as strong as they may have been. So the library really for example, has, for example. well, uh, for instance, churches, things like the Grange or the Odd Fellows or whatever, uh, in that a lot of the social sort of meeting places that existed in communities a century ago or 50 years ago are, are not necessarily necessarily stronger or just more fragmented. We have the mall and we have these big box bookstores. Right. And I am uh, all for big box bookstores because, again, uh, I think that there is uh, so much room for, I think, people who buy books in many instances are very avid library users. I use bookstores a lot myself. I like to buy a lot of books. I also find that when I am looking for a specific title, the odds of finding it in a bookstore are really not that good, mm. uh, particularly if you're a little bit off the beaten track. So that I think a, uh, a balanced diet for someone who's an active reader and has a lot of personal interests does include both using the library and using bookstores. I think that we would be well served by a country that had uh, even more bookstores and I think that they could very peacefully coexist with even stronger libraries. One of the things that ticks me off about libraries though, or at least it's me perhaps and not the library's fault, is that I go and borrow a book and then I forget to return it and then I get fined. I think I've paid in the last six months, I must have paid 200 bucks in fines. Is that where libraries make a lot of their money? No. I would say typically overdue fines represent maybe 1% of a library's budget. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about that uh, because many libraries that I'm aware of have stopped charging fees. You look like you might be able to afford $200 uh, in overdue fees. And, and let's step back and remember that... Oh, I don't feel so <laughs> bad about providing them with that money as I might the police, for example, for giving me parking tickets. Right. Let me say that, remember that the reason for a fine is to provide a, a meaningful incentive for people to get the book back so that somebody else can read the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and most libraries do offer very liberal renewal policies 
So if you're like me, you're more likely to get stuck with a fine because you've forgotten to renew the book than because you can't renew the book. But uh, having said that, uh, this really becomes an issue, uh, for instance, uh, because libraries are very much interested in reaching out to non-traditional users. Mm -hmm. And by that we mean you've got people who, in almost every community, who... Uh, for instance, uh, they don't have books in the house. Yeah. Uh, children They're who grow up. Too poor to buy them, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the um, the area where there's been a lot of discussion about fees because it's very typical. I know that when I was a uh, younger, uh, you lost the book or your brother lost the book, and the next thing you know, you owed like, you know, $10. And at that point, that was a huge amount of money. Your parents were mad at you. Um, and uh, in fact, I think there's a lot of concern that that might be inhibiting use by the people who need libraries most. Mm -hmm. So a lot of libraries at this point are abandoning fees. Uh, in many instances, libraries would abandon fees, but they're being um, they're getting some pressure from their funding authorities to recover the income, uh, and I think that's very short-sighted, especially when it's such a small portion of the library's budget. Uh, this is a personal opinion. It certainly is no ALA position. Uh, but I think that we certainly are eager to do anything that would reduce barriers to library usage. And I think we're all aware of the fact that, you know, if you're living in an environment where you don't have books in the home, you're also probably living in an environment uh, where books may be more prone to being lost. If you've got a lot of brothers and sisters or, or whatever, you know, my personal feeling is is that I don't think fees are necessarily a positive thing because they can really make a huge difference. And particularly when children are younger, if you get the reading habit, if you get the library habit, as I did, it, it doesn't take much to disturb that. Mm -hmm. And once it's disturbed, it's not something you can necessarily go back and pick up. It's like learning a foreign language. What else are libraries doing to raise funds because they must be squeezed? I know, for example, in Canada that the libraries have to go to the city hall every year and re-justify their budgets, or every two or three years, I'm not sure, but I, I would imagine just like everywhere else, they're under pressure, uh, or at least their budgets are shrinking. Yeah. Are there things that are happening that are, that are augmenting those funds? Uh, first of all, uh, in the case of public libraries, majority of funding is from local municipalities or counties. A funding situation varies because a number of libraries do receive municipal appropriations, which means they have to go to a city or sometimes a county. Uh, in many parts of the United States, libraries actually are independent taxing authorities, and in that case, they have to go to the voters in order to secure an increase in funding. One of the interesting things uh, is that libraries tend to be more well-funded if they can go directly to the voters because the voters look at how much they're spending on libraries which might be uh, $100 a household or $50 a household uh, and then they compare it with other taxes that they're paying uh, and I think libraries really come across as a very good deal mm -hmm. in relationship to what's being invested. And often they're not they don't have the same opinion as the, as the politicians do. I know right. you know for example in our hometown I wish the libraries were open at better hours. They've got the strangest hours. I, and that's a huge problem, is most libraries know that their users want them to be open longer. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the lack of funding, I think, has uh, the biggest impact. The second area, then, is just in collections. 
people generally want to see more newer books. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to be able to request something and know and have the library be able to either get it on interlibrary loan or be able to uh, order it. And obviously, they want access to uh, databases and other kinds of uh, electronic resources. And really, this is where the budgets tend to really inhibit, but ours being number one. Uh, and that's obviously related directly to staffing. A certain percentage of library funding does come from endowments and gifts and uh, friends groups and book sales. Um, That uh, typically may represent, like uh, I know in Massachusetts, maybe 8% uh, of funding came from those sources. So again, 90% of your funding is going to be from uh, the local public sources. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, And library funding really varies quite a bit. Uh, A lot of it has to do with obviously community wealth but strangely enough there's not always a correlation between wealth and library support Uh, and that's where ALA works with local libraries because we try and a do what we can to help promote best practice Mm -hmm. so that sometimes libraries need to they may not be offering services that people really want Mm -hmm. Uh, libraries can be either very much in touch with their communities or sometimes less in touch with their communities the closer they are to them they can use the general public then to lobby the political interest to exactly increase funding and that does work now ALA also works we work at the national level Uh, in order to secure federal funding. Uh, We have two very large programs in the United States. One is the Library Services and Technology Act, which is about $170 million a year that goes to libraries. Uh, And then there's the E-rate, which is support for Internet access and wiring and equipment. And that's uh, about the same amount of money. So the total funding is about maybe $350 million just in those two programs. So that's an important piece of library funding. It may only be 1% uh, nationally, but obviously the Library Services and Technology Act really helps to stimulate a sort of cutting-edge projects and, and outreach to uh, emerging communities, a lot of uh, shared database access, which has been a really important factor in electronic access, has been just libraries cooperating together. Uh, and then the other program which provides just broadband access and helps to uh, lower the cost of uh, internet for libraries. Uh, those are two really important programs. That you've lobbied successfully. Yeah, ALA has played, uh, I think, a very, very important role in getting those two programs. Uh, We're currently working on a proposal as part of the stimulus package that's under discussion by the uh, 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 President's transition team. Uh, And we're hoping that we'll be able to make the case that libraries are a key component of the infrastructure. Library use is up in many instances. The increases have been in the uh, 20-25% range. Per uh, year? uh, Since last year. So people are, in fact, coming to libraries because... uh, Retooling and re-educating? Right, or just because they don't have as much disposable income and Mm -hmm. a place where you can get stuff to read and watch and listen to for free is is a little bit more attractive. And I think part of it is just part of an overall trend, whereas libraries, the emergence of online information and the internet and social networking, they're continuing to meet the needs of communities, uh, and that really has been turning around what it was, you know, we're still fighting with a very stodgy image, uh, Mm -hmm. and I think that the typical person on the street still tends to think of the library as a place where you get shushed, but the fact of the matter is, is that people are getting it, uh, and librarians in their own way and communities at their own speeds, in fact, are, are moving ahead into a new environment.
I'm speaking with Keith Michael Fields, who's the executive director of the American Library Association. You talked about best practices. Based on your experience and the uh, experience of the ALA membership sharing these practices, I'm a librarian in Oiseau, Wisconsin, and I need to improve my library. What are the top five things that I should do? Well, first of all, I think that you need to get out. You need to be getting out at the statewide level, and that would be through uh, active involvement in the statewide library association to find out what other libraries are doing in the state. You need uh, to also uh, get out and become a little bit more active at the national level. ALA does two conferences a year, thousands of programs, probably tens of thousands of speakers talking on every aspect of library service. So it's a great opportunity. You can uh, hit four meetings uh, in the course of a day. You can hear a panel on what's the best thing uh, for teens and young adults. Um, You can you can really learn a lot about what's going on out there. Uh, Okay, but let's just let's let's cut out the ALA right now. Sure. And just go with appreciating that this is important as you said to network so that you uh, you get a better understanding of what everyone else is doing. Right. But let's uh, let's look at specifics that they could do. Okay. So let me then just before I uh, go to specifics, the second thing they need to do is to actually do some formal community-based planning as well. And that would include community needs assessment. Uh, for instance, are they talking with community groups, trying to find out what their needs are? Uh, the other thing, in addition to going out and, and uh, learning more about what best practice is, also they need to go out to their community uh, and actually open up some dialogue there. Find out what people want. Do people want the library to be open Thursday evening? Mm-hmm. Uh, do they want the library open on Sunday? Uh, what do the elderly need who can't come to the library? What you know? What do the schools need? What do the students need? So uh, I think the second part is that kind of, of needs assessment. I think that out of that then comes the specifics that you've discussed. Uh, because some libraries have a community that demands very sophisticated online services. Other communities may not have a strong uh, school library, so they really need uh, an increased focus on, for instance, services to students. Uh, Other communities are changing. I I remember doing a study once a number of years ago for a library that had a collection of uh, 100,000 books. And we looked at the community and discovered uh, that 78% of the people in the community were Cuban and spoke English as a second language. Uh, Would you care to hazard how many books there were in Spanish in that library? The answer is 1,000 out of the 100,000. So uh, very frequently, libraries were created in a a sort of a traditional model. Sort of superimposed upon the community rather than the other the other way around. Well, uh, yeah, and um, this goes back to the 1880s. It, initially, there was a, a terrible controversy about whether fiction should be added to yeah. library collections uh, because it was considered to be morally frivolous, and there were uh, very strong issues when, for instance, uh, immigrants came at the turn of the century as to what responsibilities were of libraries. Uh, Was it a temple and a repository of great literature? Did people need to approach it on their knees? Or was there, in fact, uh, a role for the library in doing outreach? So So versus sort of reflective versus prescriptive. uh, Correct, yeah. Well, or reflective and uh, reflective of the community. 
And this, I think, also applies in today's online world. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, it's pretty likely that the teen age population in a town is involved in some kind of social networking. Uh, it, is the library involved? Uh, does the library have a blog? Does the mm-hmm. library have a website? Does the Facebook. library have a yeah. Facebook yeah. presence? So that the same mechanisms of getting in touch with your users, trying to uh, get somebody out who can understand or relate to the perspective of the users, and then finding staff that can then build bridges between these user groups. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a new group of people who are from Laos, uh, who you know have moved into a neighborhood in town, uh, whether it's teenagers who are um, you know using social networking sites, a big thrust at ALA this last year has been gaming, uh, because it's something that is, uh, as anyone who has ever worked with a younger person is uh, has a, a tremendous amount of allure. Uh, libraries are not trying to grapple with things like, well, h- how do we relate to this? Um, well, comics. I mean, uh, precisely, you know, yeah, graphic novels, right? Yeah, yeah, typically look down their nose at them, and yet this is what the young people read. So, right. The thrust seems to be to get people in to get people using your service. Well, and the other thing now at this point is you don't even have to get them in. Mm. Uh, They did a study in Florida recently where uh, they, I I think, identified about 15% of library usage was through the web. So it Mm. it may be that you're going to see an increasing number of users, particularly as more and more resources become electronic or are available in an electronic form, uh, who in fact uh, don't come to the library physically, but are using the library remotely. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of different you know, sort of realms of this. One is, as I said, you've got electronic resources. I think the second is the sort of social networking. Uh, if you can go online, ask the librarian a question, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you get a response. Find quickly. out what the uh, third longest uh, you know river in Africa is. Uh, it probably beats having to get in your car uh, and do that as well. And it's probably uh, more accurate than going to Google. And well, there I mean, was that's a, the debate. Right? A, there was a funny story in the uh, Onion magazine. I don't know if you're aware of it. Yeah. Uh, and the title was "Factual Error Found on Internet." Uh, and it was just a lovely story <laughs> about how they had found an, an error in a Brady Bunch uh, fan site, uh, and uh, authorities were saying that this really has shaken public confidence in the Internet. So, as anyone who's used the Internet knows, uh, it is a almost like a city dump in that there's wonderful stuff, but it's mixed in with a lot of commercial material yeah. and a lot of um, propaganda. Uh, propaganda and a lot of just misinformation. Yeah. So. You know, one of the real challenges has been increasingly that as people get more sophisticated in the use of the Internet, I think the role of the librarian has changed um, in that the librarian increasingly is somebody who people go to when they've reached a, a dead end in their own researches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember, you know, in many instances, I think the other issue with Google is, you know, from my perspective, I think that the relevance has actually decreased over the last year or two as commercialization increasingly is what determines what ends up at the top of a hit list. Mm -hmm. So that it is interesting to see that the commercialization of Google has really had a noticeable effect on the relevance of it. Searches, Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the big defense that the librarian will always come up with, is that, uh, that Google will come up with millions of site uh, based on your search, right? as opposed to the librarian who will come up with what's most re- relevant is the key word here. I don't know about that. I mean, well, I think Google 
if you're savvy about the sources, right, then I think Google can take care of my interests or needs most of the time. Well, let me say that um, you referred this as a librarian's defense, and I would say that uh, there really is no need for defense. I mean, I think the facts show that people are turning to libraries as part of this new environment, so that I don't see it as a competition. You're probably not the average user, so that uh, I think... I think I'm probably the average, fairly well-educated user, though. Right. But again, I don't know where that places you within the overall population, probably at the 90th percentile. So I guess the question is, you the reasons why you would turn to a library would be, in fact, probably different from somebody who was at the other end and, and couldn't, you know... Yeah, uh, couldn't determine what's true, quote, true or not true. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I, I think that this is going to be something that's going to increasingly be a topic of discussion. There's no answer because it's an evolving dynamic as the amount of information continues to increase. Uh, you start to see issues like, for instance, archival internet issues. What happens when you go back to a link and it's dead and a database that contained information you were using no longer exists? There are some fascinating issues about this. A lot of discussion about what would the role of librarians then be in their traditional role of preserving information and making it accessible on a long-term basis uh, within this environment. And I think that's a whole fascinating uh, issue in itself. That opens the door to my uh, quick question here yeah. about uh, what's happened in Canada. The National Library has amalgamated with the uh, National Archives just simply because it makes a great deal of sense to do this. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that there are uh, some obstacles to that here in the United States because of the fact that the uh, Library of Congress and the National Archives are really uh, situated in different corners of government and appropriations here. Having said that, I also believe that they are working very actively to look at things like interoperability. Uh, if, in fact, we believe that the advantage of new technologies is that they can uh, essentially dissolve physical distance and um, traditional structures, uh, I think it's quite possible that we can get to an environment within which uh, the same kind of interoperability is present here, even if we have two different institutions. That's exactly the same answer I got from Bruno Racine in France. Interesting, yeah. yeah just to, but again, I mean, I think it's as much as anything a political concern that these are two institutions that would be difficult, perhaps, to bring together because there's a sort of a, a pride in the profession and a desire to keep them distinct. Well, on the other hand, if we were to look at the motives of those who suggest that consolidation is better, unfortunately it has been my experience, and I've been working with government at the federal and state level for about 25 years now, that the total is not greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, generally speaking, most of these proposals are accompanied by a decrease in appropriation yeah. because we're going to have all these economies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm afraid that I really haven't seen any instances uh, in which uh, it would be great if somebody said, we're going to give both of these organizations the same amount of money and now have them work together. Unfortunately, sadly, in uh, the political environment, it doesn't work that way. So generally speaking, the people that are f in favor of a consolidation, and I'm not in any way 
uh, criticizing you because this may have worked smashingly in uh, the case of the Canadian merger. Very frequently there's somebody there uh, trying to figure out how they can then reduce the overall funding. And that, that does concern me because I think that one of the greatest threats to libraries is the latest management fad, the let's think outside the box. As I say, and I, I do speak a lot to library groups, the people who are always talking about a library without walls are generally ready to get started by providing us with a library without money. Um, and that, that, So I, I think that we need to sometimes look at the motives of people that claim to be forward-thinking because I think you really need to look at the facts. And the facts are that libraries are more heavily used than ever. Uh, they are broadening the amount of information that they provide. Uh, libraries do a fabulous job of working cooperatively at the national level, at the state level, so that you can go into almost any library in the United States and get anything, uh, with the exception of some rare and fragile item. I, I would really bet that you can get into the smallest library in rural Montana and get something for which there are only a few copies in the United States. And I think that's a tremendous accomplishment uh, just in terms of physically moving around physical materials. Obviously, with digitization and the Google project and the like, increasingly then any library that can provide a terminal, uh, in fact, is going to be able to provide you with uh, huge, huge access to uh, recorded literature and, and history and information. And that's something that, you know, I've been working on now for 25 years. Other people have been working on it for 50 years. It, it's, it's something that's very, very exciting to us. Just in closing, there's so many big topics. Google scanning for digitization, for example, and where you stand on that. Future of the book. I do want to get back to the best practices. Great. Just because I'd, I'd like you to give my uh, rural librarian who may be listening to this, after they've done all of the research that you've talked about, do you have a few examples of minor things that have been done that have had a major impact, very specifically? Okay. All right, so where, which of these do you want to start with? I want to start with the one I just finished with, the, the minor changes that had a, a major impact on the efficiency, the effectiveness of the local library. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a couple of examples. Uh, let me uh, cogitate on that for a sure. second here. And uh, maybe we can talk about the other ones and then come sure. back to that. Yeah, okay. okay. So then there's, for example, in France, the National Library has their own digitization program. Mm -hmm. Google has just reached an agreement with the second largest library in the country, in Lyon, to do all of their scanning and digitization and then to sell advertising around yeah. it. At some point down the road, it'll all become public. But the deal is that Google's got the rights to, I guess, selling advertising around it. And it's going to cost much less than it might otherwise for Lyon. Right. Which opens up all sorts of interesting questions about ownership of cultural property. And, but just you know, in, within the states and within your organization, can you clarify a position or what do you think is best or yeah you know that google was sued by yeah, the american association of publishers and then in fact there has been a settlement on that but it wasn't that it was 100 million or something wasn't it 125 uh, more, more than that more importantly there's a, a protocol um it's actually a protocol that's been developed I think that, as I recall, uh, and, and obviously the listeners know, that Google basically went into a, a group of large academic libraries and digitized their collections. Initially, they were going to provide 
some sort of limited access, they were sued by the publishers. My understanding is that what we discovered was that of the materials that were digitized, 30% were no longer protected under copyright. My percentages may be off a bit here. That about uh, 70% was copyrighted. And of the 70%, only 10% was in print. So that would mean 10% in print and available, 60% covered under copyright but no longer in print, and 30% that was basically public domain. What they have done is to basically provide for a what would be called a scheme in Europe, which is to say that, in fact, Google will then pay a royalty for displays of any of the copyrighted works. So they'd, they'd give up a percentage of whatever advertising they'd driven you, right. they'd get for clicks on that particular... Exactly, right. And I, and I think that this is a, an appropriate settlement, mm -hmm. uh, because I think the notion that a library could give a book which it purchased to Google, and then Google would own the book, uh, clearly is not consistent with anything that would fly for anyone. It, it, it mm -hmm. did kind of defy common sense and anyone's sort of plain English a comprehension of what copyright and author's rights do mean. So I think that the settlement uh, at this point is appropriate. There are protocols that they can only display 20 pages, then they have to skip seven, then display another 20. It's an incredibly uh, intricate kind of dance, the goal being that they've convinced the publishers that the display will in fact lead to some increased demand. Uh, there's some studies that have shown that people tend to read maybe the first 30 pages of a book online and then they give up in irritation and buy a copy. Uh, with Amazon now providing access to out-of-print books uh, on a pretty reliable basis, it's also tough to argue that you can't get hold of something so... There's uh, no such thing as out-of-print anymore, really, is there? I, because well, of print-on-demand. Cer certainly. Well, now, print-on-demand isn't covered on this yet because theoretically the ability to print-on-demand still resides with the copyright holder, not with Google, unless uh, it's covered as part of this agreement where if Google sells a print-on-demand, then it'll go back. So, to me, it sort of maps out the chart for the next couple of years on this environment. I think it seems reasonable that it does, I think, preserve the rights of copyright holders, which I think as librarians and law-abiding librarians, uh, we need to be very careful because we're not in the business of pirating uh, works. Uh, and in fact, if the system were to fall apart, uh, libraries aren't going to benefit either because it just makes the purchase of materials, it, it becomes a thorny situation. They benefit simply by having this stuff digitized, though. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As far as the future of the book goes, um, I guess, you know, this has been an issue for about 10 years. Uh, my feeling is, is by the time a digital book looks like a book, is as usable as this book, is as durable as a book, uh, and as affordable as a book, it's going to pretty much look like a book. <laughs> and um, so that the only thing that will change... Uh, I mean, for instance, you need a reader that you can drop in the sand yeah, uh, and then dry back out. So I, I think durability is, is really an issue. Readability, uh, something you can read in bright sunlight. But let's say all of these get resolved. Something you smell. Uh, right. Well, I don't know about smell. I I'm, I'm prefer my books to be scentless, frankly. But um, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is it's going gonna, it's gonna to bark and quack so much like a book that it will really be moot. Now, the question then becomes... And this is where copyright and, and uh, intellectual property law becomes then so important, and this is why ALA has been fighting in this area very hard. 
the model uh, as established by Benjamin Franklin of the library was that we would buy a copy of this book and then we would let four people use it. So that would mean that the cost of the book could then be amortized uh, among four people or 40 people might use the book over time. And so that the economic model of people contributing to create a library and then benefiting from uh, access to a larger pool of materials than they would otherwise have, I think is a very sound model. There is a struggle underway in which the owners of copyrighted material, and on this one frequently we do butt heads with the publishers, would love to be able to collect money every time somebody reads a book. Now, again, if we look back at the publishing model we discussed earlier, for a very small percentage of books, it's moot. For a larger number of books, unless a library buys a copy and has it waiting on a shelf, then there is no book because there's no market for the book. So I think one of the issues then becomes you've got some draconian sort of approaches on the part of publishers in which there would be no way for the library to ever save its users money because each user would still have to pay again. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is is that that's not sustainable because publishers, people won't buy it. So the fact of the matter is, is that there is still a market and libraries play a really significant role in this market. So I do believe that even in an online environment, libraries are capable of negotiating contracts and agreements for intellectual property in electronic form so that they can still continue to provide amplified benefits to their users. And it's that amplified benefit package that really distinguishes what is the the essence of a library. And that is a collection of written or text or other informational resources Uh, that is collectively created for the mutual benefit of all and also then provides benefits to the individual that are greater than the individual could have through their own expenditure of the same amount of money. And I I think that's the key, isn't it? If it's easier and more convenient for the end user just to buy it off the the publisher, then that jeopardizes the role that the library might play. But again, what percentage of published output. If one only reads bestsellers from airports in paperback, then one probably doesn't need a library. But that would... No, but I think with the digitization, if every book from now on is digitized, then it's easily accessible by the general public. But you're right. Who would want to purchase it? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, Show me a model in which digital books are significantly cheaper than printed books. I mean, part of it is the publishers, in fact, are also most of the cost of a book has nothing to do with the production. Mm-hmm. It has to do with, uh, on a $10 paperback, it may be $2 in paper uh, and printing. So part of it is the majority of costs are associated with things like the intellectual property, profits of publishers, profits uh, and royalties going back to authors. Obviously, uh, digital publications can eliminate bookstores. But the fact of the matter is, is as long as publishers are interested in selling... Sorry, they'll turn bookstores into little printing presses. So you'd go in and you'd order something like a video off the shelf and then they'd print it there for you right off the right off the press. And that, I think there will be more and more yeah. of that. Uh, so, but Sorry to interrupt. No, well, I guess the question then becomes, can I, as a library, say, I'm going to buy a thousand electronic uh, books... Or let's say there aren't really electronic books. I'm going to buy a thousand uses 
for my users. So what I would do is then go to a publisher and say, "These are you're charging $10 a piece for these. That's $10,000. Let's make a deal. I'll give you 5000 So what we're doing there is we're amplifying the benefit to the user by uh, 50% or by 100% in that instance. So I think that as long as libraries continue to work together, we're in a constant struggle because publishers are trying to make more money. That's their part of their job. And libraries are trying to provide uh, taxpayers or faculty and students with the maximum amount of benefit for the resources to be devoted. I do not believe that there is anything that suggests that the ability to work in that kind of a collective environment uh, will be eliminated. Students will still probably go directly to the internet and download, you know, the latest episode of The Sopranos, but or or a newspaper front page or something like that. So there are a lot of areas where libraries are not really competitive. On the other hand, if you want a newspaper from 20 years ago, publishers aren't finding that to be a very profitable business. So what happens is libraries then also end up picking up as profitability shifts, libraries pick up everything else. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like it's like the airline between two really popular cities. Right. They'll they'll make money off that, but right. they're not going to make money flying off the top day up there or wherever it might be. Right, and uh, publishers are going to go for low-hanging fruit, yeah. uh, as are libraries as well. So you're going to look at where are the areas where we can provide the maximum effectiveness in the case of publishers, profitability in the case of libraries, benefits to the user group uh, in relationship to the amount that's being invested. So ultimately, the model becomes economic and an intellectual property issue. I do believe that because a publisher would generally speaking prefer to have $5,000 in the hand yeah. at the beginning of the year than the possibility of making 10000 and particularly since the medium-sized and independent publishers really depend on the library market. Uh, I think that there's long been sort of a healthy relationship between the two. And a, and a, and a healthy serving of the market, too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because people can then find what they want, uh, both through their library uh, and at the same time, where there's low-hanging fruit. Publishers are not going to sell libraries' rights to bestsellers and then lose millions and millions of dollars in revenue. But for most of the things that get published in both a print and an electronic environment, uh, there is a, a great deal of room for negotiation. I think that the enemy of this, of course, is just the sheer complexity. And that's, I think, the thing that has become much more difficult uh, because, you know, ALA has a website with, at this point, I think 60,000 pages on it. The unique thing about our website is because it's created by librarians from every corner of the profession, it's not a flat database. It's not like eBay. It's not like Amazon. It's not like a library card catalog. Uh, every document has a unique set of interrelationships with other documents throughout the whole site so that I think that you really begin to... Things like uh, Google uh, are um, enormous forces and positive forces, but there are just edges around which the libraries and the public sector are going to work. How do we use this then to enhance what we're doing for our communities? Uh, and at the same time, uh, you've got a commercial aspect and whatever. So it's just uh, it's it's a complex and obviously. A much more dynamically changing environment. I think the publishing models that existed at the turn of the century pretty much existed 
in the same form by the end of the Second World War. Uh, and, and certainly we are seeing a lot of change uh, in those interrelationships. So it makes your job quite exciting. Uh, let's say challenging and, and exciting as well. I, let me say that one of the things I am is confident about the future of libraries, and not just because we're going to be the same way we always were, but because of the creativity and the real brilliance of so many librarians working in individual situations. There are a lot of great, smart people, and they're really trying to work for the public benefit uh, and for individual benefit uh, and really do a, a great job at it. It's my great pleasure to be the person who serves this group as best I can and tries to you know, forward uh, what I think has been a great, great institution, has made a huge difference in this country and, and certainly everywhere where libraries have um, come to exist. I do think that we have a very, very strong future ahead of us. And to some degree, the more complex and more technology advances, I think that the opportunities for libraries are actually you know, greater than ever. I did a symposium once in Cambridge where they talked about the future of the library and uh, everyone was very cerebral. They had people from Harvard and uh, very philosophical. And at one point I did have to point out that to the best of my knowledge, every study that we had seen did indicate that people would probably still have bodies for the foreseeable future so that uh, people needed to think about things like restrooms and libraries and places to sit down. So the fact of the matter is is that I think there's a tendency as we get very excited about technology to come to conclusions that are just silly uh, about uh, the fact that uh, people are no longer going to interact. Everyone will sit in their parents' basement, you know, on their computer. The fact is is that people continue to be uh, social beings, and they continue to need community and interaction, uh, and that that's a whole other aspect that I think libraries are, are very strong on. All right, now you asked me about some simple things that libraries can do. Well, uh, one of the things that has been a, a big movement in libraries has just been the way people display things. So, for instance, libraries uh, increasingly go over to bookstores, and they notice that bookstores uh, actually display things with the covers facing out and whatever. So when I was in Massachusetts, we had a series of grants. Uh, we provided some training on basic bookstore marketing, gave people a little bit of money to do some different kind of shelving and whatever, uh, and bingo, the libraries were able to dramatically increase circulation. And the reason is because people would come into the libraries, uh, and instead of seeing a long row of spines with call labels on them, they were able to see the covers of books and whatever. It shows a sort of level of judgment, too, on the librarian's part as to what books you think they will sell the best, quote-unquote, among their, uh, their patrons. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, again, there there's a lot to be learned from bookstores uh, in this regard. Now, on the other hand, you know, God love you if you're in a big bookstore and trying to find something, uh, because uh, it seems to me that the Dewey Decimal System is much maligned, but boy, does it work when you actually need to find something and you've got 100,000 books sitting in a stack in front of you. Mm. Uh, some of the other things that really have to do with things like outreach to teens. So, for instance, uh, libraries that uh, will do graphic novel collections, uh, maybe bring in a few uh, video games to circulate uh, and whatever, have really had great luck in terms of being able to get kids in and that that has had a huge impact. 
because again, once you can get kids into yeah. the library and they Practice. realize it's a friendly yeah. place, mm -hmm. uh, then that makes a huge difference in terms of they're likely then to uh, actually do better in school and whatever. And there's a lot of documentation that shows that. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of some of the other things. Oh, a handicapped ramp. How's that? Uh, there still are a lot of libraries that a person in a wheelchair can't get into. Teens doing, for instance, book discussion groups or book review sites. So you're basically getting users involved in generating content and exchanging book reviews. I know that my experience as a school librarian uh, was that you really, if you got a good book into that school, I could get it into the hands of a hundred kids over the course of a year because people are very interested in something that's a good read. Uh, and there still is a tremendous market. The question is, you know, how do you get people thinking, well, that might actually be interesting so that they can crack the book. I mean, Harry Potter has been just a wonderful thing because uh, I think prior to that there was a general sense that the young, you know, had left reading behind. And I think what this really showed is that something that's uh, incredibly imaginative it can, in fact, uh, you know, really be something that becomes popular. It's like Dickens. Or more uh, fascinating than being spoon-fed it over a screen. I would agree with you. Yeah, there's a, another whole issue, and I'll just change the topic briefly, and that's literacy, because I, I do believe that the Internet, and I, I'll, I'll put gaming aside for the moment, I think the Internet has actually, I, I think, has begun to reverse what has been a steady deterioration in literacy, beginning with the uh, introduction of television. Well, you still have to be able to re read to understand instructions, and if you want to win these video games... You probably have to read what other people have said about best practices. Right. So then, uh, because uh, gaming is one of the things we've been working with, we've got a great grant with Verizon that we're doing. Uh, in fact, higher-order thinking skills uh, are something that we do want to encourage. And anyone who's uh, worked with anybody who's really into gaming knows that there is a complexity there that is stunning. I, I you know, have an easier time dealing with reality than I do with virtual reality. Complexity, but also, as I say, it's fierce competitiveness. Exactly, yeah. And if you can somehow help them to win by learning how to read. Yeah. And I think, again, the Internet uh, text messaging probably... It remains to be seen whether any great literature will emerge from it, uh, the collected emails of uh, Shakespeare. But the fact of the matter is is that I think that there is some indication that what had been a steady deterioration at this point, we're starting to see what I think has been some leveling out uh, or bottoming out on that. latest uh, figure I saw still had the average American watching something like eight hours of television a day. I don't know how they squeeze it in. Just running all the time, isn't it? Yeah. So I think that there are some definite signs of encouragement, both for libraries and for society as a whole. NEA, a National Endowment for the Arts, just did a study. They had done a study a couple of years ago that was very depressing, uh, which suggested that literary reading was on a steady decline. And at this point, they have done a second study, which suggests that there are maybe some indications that we're seeing a bounce back. I think it's probably part of that overall phenomenon I described. I'm not sure that it's a result of any particular effort on, on anyone's part, but certainly libraries, I think, have been playing their part by trying to be opening, inviting places. Uh, you talked about things that can make a difference. Again, if you've got a lot of Spanish people in the community, it's amazing how hiring a librarian who can also speak Spanish and buying a couple dozen Spanish books can make a huge difference, or even some Spanish newspapers. Very frequently, there are 
simple things that can be done that really make a huge difference uh, in a library. Keith, you have just packed this hour with all sorts of stimulating thoughts and ideas. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for a few stimulating questions. I've been speaking with uh, Keith Michael Fields, who is the executive director of the American Library Association, which is headquartered here in today sunny Chicago. But cold. <laughs>